welcome to this episode of the Bell Education Podcast with me, Rebecca Stedge, and me, Sam Bufton, ably assisted by our producer, Laura. Today's very special guest is Mr. Nick Walsh. He is from the Department for International Trade, specialising in education, agriculture, and you just informed me, food and drink, Nick. Yes, it's a harsh, harsh uh, job, that last one. Um, but, you know, I do my best to help people uh, with that. Yeah. So um, the Department for International Trade, not everyone will know what you do. Um, and yet you do lots of um, important work within uh, education, obviously international education. If it's possible, um, can you let us know top level overall what the DIT is and then a bit more perhaps about what your role within it could be? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, um, at its simplest, Department of International Trade is one of the uh, ministries in the uh, government, um, and um, we're there to help British business um, be more successful in exporting, uh, to increase their international trade, and also um, increase the amount of investment into the UK. Um, The new ministry is Anne-Marie Trevelyan. Uh, who's come in quite recently uh, as part of the government reshuffle. Um, and uh, it's it's a huge organisation. Um, it does many, many things. But here in uh, East of England, um, I'm part of a team that is here to help local businesses. Um, and uh, quite a few of us have some specialist areas that we uh, help clients in. Um, and mine happen to be education, agri-tech and uh, food and drink. What are some of the other ones? Oh, wow. Uh, wonderful manufacturing, uh-huh. uh, technology, um, uh, things like uh, railways, um, uh, financial services, um, retail. Oh, the list goes on and on. Oh, fascinating. And there are DITs over the, all over the world as well. So you've got offices in so many different countries. How many do you think you've got across the world? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know exactly how many there are, but um, the way it works is in a lot of countries, we've actually got um, uh, our offices based in the um, embassies. Okay. Um, And um, if we haven't actually got offices there, then we work with a chamber of commerce uh, or another partner. Um, So in most of the countries in the world where there's um, lots of regular trade with UK businesses, then we've usually got a team there who can support people locally. And indeed, in some markets, we have specialists, for instance, in education. Um, uh, so as you know in markets like Latin America or Asia the UK has been very successful in um, in selling education products and also recruiting students from overseas and we have people who are based there who can help uh, British business with uh, being even more successful. Okay and then you've got obviously so you look after the east of England, but then you obviously have colleagues that cover the rest of the UK as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, we cover um, all of the UK um, and basically we're, we're here to help any British business to be more successful, any UK business to be more successful um, in international markets. Um, and there's lots of different ways that, that we help them. Um, uh, one of the challenges for businesses is that um, there is so much information and help out there 
the thing is, it's not always obvious. How do you access all of this and where do you get the contacts from? You know, how do you find out um, about regulations and standards and tax, VAT, all of these different things? Um, Does it matter which government, in terms of which party, um, is in power? Does that affect the DIT? Is the DIT always there and it's just perhaps um, functions in a different way depending on um, what the cabinet thinks it should do? Or is it is it kind of always there and, and not massively influenced by, by who's at number 10, etc.? Well, certainly there's uh, an export strategy. Um, um, and every every government would have an export strategy. Every government has an export strategy. Um, and, and the useful thing to think about is you might say, well, okay, why why would the government want to help business to, to export or to, to gain more uh, international investment? Well, the answer is, is there's lots of really good studies that have shown that businesses that are um, most successful, um, more profitable, those who grow fast are those who export. Um, and you might have actually heard it was part of the discussions um, recently um, where the government um, and Boris Johnson has been talking about how do we make the UK more efficient, more sustainable? Well, the answer is, is actually if businesses get involved in export, then they nearly are always more successful, more profitable. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess we are only ultimately a small island. There are only so many customers um, on the island for our for our products and services. So, I guess you know, it makes perfect sense for for the and it always has. I like, really hasn't it the UK? It's always it's exported all sorts of things over the years, good and bad. But we don't need to get into that. That's a history podcast, which we're not doing. <laughs> um, so um, I don't know how much you can talk about this, but. But Brexit, did did that make a difference to what you do? Because it would seem to me that that obviously um, post Brexit, then international trade is the only game in town, isn't it? That's what that's what we we have to do. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly for Department of International Trade, we're incredibly busy. As you probably heard um, back at uh, HQ in London, uh, there's teams who are neg- negotiating lots of free trade deals, and that's a very big agenda for us. Um, and it really follows from the fact that um, uh, we're now in a, a global economy. I know it's an easy thing to say, but it really is. Uh, and where the markets of the future are is changing quite radically. You know, there's some quite interesting um, studies that have indicated that, you know, the centre of the economic world is going to be somewhere off in Asia um, within the next uh, 20 years. Um, And that means that the markets that um, we may have focused on in the past become slightly less important, but other new markets are coming on. And for British business, they're very hungry to find new markets. I think it's also worth saying, um, and actually Bell Education is an absolute fantastic example of this, is that actually businesses where you have a great diversity, where you have people coming from all around the world, actually end up having much better products just from that international contact. And I'm sure for your students, one of the great benefits of coming here is meeting people from all around the world that they'd never normally meet uh, and that enriches them alongside of what they're doing um, in terms of the subject matter they may be learning. Yeah, no, that is, um, that's absolutely key to, to it being successful. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast series, please drop us a line at podcast at bellenglish.com. 
so Nick, education, agriculture, um, we've um, been looking into into both those things recently with our creation of our agricultural science university foundation program um, with the the intake coming in September 2022 so I've found um, a working with you very helpful um, and secondly the the subject matter um, really really interesting um, tell us a bit more about the the agricultural side of, of the work you do I know it's probably quite tied with education but also just business and tech isn't it yeah exactly well one of the great things is um, we're all based here in Cambridge and actually Cambridge um, is a wonderful place not just term in terms of education of creating great education companies and products but actually in the whole field of agri-tech um, you, the UK and the East Anglia is incredibly innovative in terms of the technologies and the approaches um, to uh, to farming, and it's all based around um, this growing need for sustainable technologies um, to find ways to grow food um, more efficiently, uh, but in a in a, a way that's better uh, for uh, the planet. Um, and we've got some f- amazing technologies that do this really, really well. Um, uh, and some of the great things that I've seen out there, I've got a client, for, for example, who's designed an app for um, small ho- smallholder farmers in Africa. Um, and what it allows them to do is to connect their products, what they produce, what they need, to international markets, which is something that you could never do back in the day. But as you know, most people um, in Africa actually do their banking, do their communication, they do everything through their little phone that they walk around with uh, and this company's developed an, a, an app that is connecting people um, in smallholder farmers that would never have been able to access international markets before yeah that's some of the stuff that um, when we're putting the the speakers list together for the students who will be on their cultural um, science foundation program the companies that we were talking to um, some of them are just absolutely um, fantastic the things the things they're doing to to try and make the planet more sustainable, and um, you know, to, to give to give local farmers in all sorts of different parts of the world the opportunity to um, to, to prosper. It's it's been um, it's been quite an eye opener, actually. I mean, obviously, we teach English, um, and I've been in this industry for ten years, and it's always been kind of teaching English. But actually, getting into the the agricultural um, part of of education, uh, must I must admit, it's been real, a real eye opener. There's some. There's some very cool companies out there doing some very cool things. Absolutely. Um, and what, what is great is that English is the great universal language that links so many things together. So education, technology, but also development in the sense of social development. Uh, so I've got another client that um, is working with smallholder farmers in places like Nigeria. And uh, what they're doing is they're helping the smallholder farmers to uh, grow products like cassava and process it efficiently actually in market rather than what used to happen where they just had to sell their uh, their goods at the cheapest rate possible and they never saw the economic benefit right. out of the products um, 
And uh, what they're able to do is to help those farmers not just to grow more efficiently, but also to bring their products to European markets, um, where actually there's a great interest in diverse um, uh, world foods. Um, and as you know, um, when you go shopping in the UK now, it's amazing what you can find on the shelves. Uh, and this company is helping them all the way along that supply chain to get into uh, into markets in the UK, but also Europe. Now, someone could say, Nick, that that's all very well. But once you've flown it from country A to country B, the uh, effects of, of that could offset the benefits of actually exporting it in terms of um, uh, carbon emissions, etc. However, um, some of this technology that, that we've been looking at um, for the, co- the companies we're working with for the foundation program, they were saying that, in fact, uh, flying will be one of the, the main drivers to, to climate um, control because they are getting close to, to kind of more efficient fuels um, for airplanes. We won't, we won't stop flying. Um, in fact, I imagine flying will become more and more popular than it's ever been as people need to get around more and more because people can trade together etc etc but the the means by which the planes are fueled um will be a will be a huge step forward won't it in the future yeah and uh, it's it's so amazing there's so many technologies that are springing up at the moment which are all addressing this need for um how do you produce in more efficient more sustainable ways um uh, and that's going to um generate some interesting approaches. Um, One of the things you may have come across already is the whole concept of vertical farming, whereby rather than having a traditional field, you've got almost like a a kind of growing factory. Uh, And you think, well, that sounds all very industrial. But actually, it's great because it means that in countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, Middle East, where at the moment it's very difficult to produce crops produce, fruit, that sort of thing. It is actually um, feasible now for these countries to grow those products themselves. To keep up to date with our podcast series, you can follow us on social media at Bell Education Podcast. So one of the companies that we were talking to was actually exploring how you could farm in space. Oh, that's, that's amazing. I don't know if it means on a planet... Or well, what would it mean? Growing on Mars. Exactly. Well, <laughs> but, it, but you can't just grow in thin air. Well, you could have a Mars bar that was grown on very Mars. Good. Yeah. Oh. Very good. Oh, I'm a, more of a fan of galaxy myself. All this sounds amazing, but is this going to ultimately drive up the cost as well of everything? It's going to the cost to the farmers, the cost to the consumers? Well, I think, well, Nick was no better than me, but the ones we were talking to, um, the the point of it is to actually find technology which reduces cost. that's so for example there's a, a drone a, a drone company who have um, built some programs which if you fly it over your orchard when the apples are even at very very young stages it can then calculate accurately what the total yield from yeah. that orchard would be so that technology is there to improve um, the the efficiency of the orchard so now the 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 grower can can accurately tell the buyer 
how much they'll be in his orchard, um, can work the price out ahead of time, can have more. Okay. So, so it, it, usually technologies, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, usually technologies are there ultimately to make the growing process and the selling process more efficient. And then in theory, the, the, the prices will, if not reduce, they may not go up. Yes, certainly. I mean, I think actually it's one of those things that we don't always appreciate is actually the cost of food over time has been pretty constant, you know, Mm. uh, because there's uh, there's been more and more technologies that have come along that have helped uh, farmers uh, and producers to be more efficient. Um, but to, to the question about space, well, that, that, one, that one is quite interesting uh, because actually they are looking at some technologies now which allow you to grow things like vaccines or medicines. Now, it could be that um, depending on where you need the product made and um, the, the costs involved, that some of these more exotic ideas might be adopted to help us with um, medicines where actually it's more important that we might grow them in these um, new environments rather than say trying to grow a lettuce yeah Um, so it's it's quite a complex area but I think the important thing to say is, is is the UK is very much in the forefront of developing these technologies Um, and with that, it also brings a great need for educational skills. Um, and uh, this is where there's such a fantastic link up between education, um, not just in the broad sense of uh, the traditional subjects, but uh, more skills based um, education. Um, that is a great opportunity for the UK as well. Um, and I think a lot of people want to come to the UK because they understand that they're going to learn much more than just subjects. They're going to learn about culture, but also about technologies and business and um, how you organise the, mo- the modern world. Yeah, those um, those STEM subjects are um, really, really important now, aren't they? They're, they're getting more and more important. They're getting more and more traction. They're getting more and more um, news headlines. It's... Um, the, the, the science, technology, education, uh, engineering and maths is, um, th- that's kind of where it's going to be, isn't it? A- absolutely. Uh, I, I was very lucky. I went to a, a recent uh, Queen's Award uh, ceremony for a company in Bedford called uh, Math Circle. Uh, and they've done a wonderful thing whereby they've got uh, an online program that gets kids really involved in maths. And I can relate to this because I absolutely hated maths when I, I shouldn't be saying this. It's not my I, strong point either. I, I, you know, I really, it wasn't my favourite subject. But when I see what they've done with that to make it accessible and fun, you think, oh, this is amazing. You know, if only I'd had this sort of thing when I was uh, their age. My daughter's just started school and she comes home and says, oh, I did maths today, mummy. And I always think, just wait. <laughs> Soon enough, you're not going to like it, but maybe she will with all these. It, it's different now, isn't it, from how we learnt it at school? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's different in all all aspects of the classroom. It used to be teacher wrote it on the board, you wrote it down. and that, That's just remembering things. That's not yeah. learning things, is it? That's, that's remembering things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think the thing is, is, if you can link all of these things into 
well, why am I even learning this? Then it becomes so much more interesting. So, you know, everything that you're talking about, the drone story, for instance, you know, mm. you, you talk to, to young people about drones and suddenly you've got your full attention. They want to know all about that, you know, and then what you can do with the camera and the vision systems and uh, all the IT that backs it up, you know, uh, uh, and, the, you know, they're drinking that stuff up. Yeah. So we've just had a, a short break and I had to admit to Nick that it was him that told me the drone story about the orchard. So I'm um, actually uh, credit to Nick for the for the drone example. Um, so that's the DIT, I guess, in a bit of a nutshell. Um, your education, agriculture, food and drink um, side to it. When you're not DITing, um, what is it that you're, you're interested in doing? Ah, well... Uh Music, travel, films, books. You could talk about it forever. Do you get to travel in your job at the DIT? It's well, not not as much as I used to. I used to travel a lot uh, for business. We all did. Yeah, yeah. we all did. Yeah. We yeah. all did. Those yeah. were the days. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is a, a funny reflection, you know, this past couple of years where I have not been on a plane at all, you know, full stop. Um, and I think back to days when... Uh, I actually did something like eight different destinations all in one trip. Yeah. Um, and you do have to stop yourself and think, hmm, you know, in terms of sustainability, was that actually such a great thing to be doing? Uh, and I certainly it wasn't um, it wasn't a, a preoccupation 10, 15 years ago. Nobody, nobody talked about yeah. that as being an issue. Um, but of course more and more people are traveling and you know we can't all keep on um getting on a plane and going off to places uh, and i don't know if you guys find it but it's frustrating isn't it sometimes when you go on holiday and you go to these fantastic places it's packed out with people and you're walking around going all these tourists they're spawning yeah. this place mm. and then you have to stop you go oh Actually, I am one of those tourists. I am one of these people spoiling the place. Yeah, I never, I, I rarely flew for holidays. I actually, it was for work I flew. I never used to get many holidays, really, because I was, I don't know why, actually. But um, all my travelling, most of my travelling was done um, for work um, in the industry. Um, and you don't get to really see as much of a place as, as maybe sometimes people think. You know, you say to the... Save the wealth from off to Dubai for four days, and well, that all sounds very nice, or Sao Paulo for a bit, or wherever it is. And um, really, it's usually airport, hotel, conference center, bit of dinner, maybe some culture, and then hotel, airport, home. Yeah, but then I think also when you're on those kind of trips, you do get to see parts that you wouldn't if you went as a tourist because often you're meeting up with local people and you get to go to a restaurant that otherwise you wouldn't have gone to, or you know, you you have conversations with people that otherwise you wouldn't if you were just there on holiday. It's always with restaurants, isn't it? Not just, I mean... It is always the restaurant. It is though, isn't it? Every yeah. time we talk about travel... Any time we talk about anything, it comes food, down to food it? anyway. Well, it absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think that is one of the one of the blessings, one of the pleasures of travelling, um, that you do get to see the real stuff rather yeah. than the, yeah. the standard tourist trail. Um but I think there is a flip side to it, which is um, for anybody who has done a lot of travelling, when you come back to the office and somebody says, 
oh, did you have a nice holiday? Or, did you have a nice you know, time? Did you have a nice time? And of course, they're imagining that you're sitting there drinking martinis, eating olives with some very, uh, very pleasant people having a, uh, a nice chat. Actually, when you're all stuck in the airport, the plane's been delayed by yeah. three hours and you've got to do a changeover in Reykjavik at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Then you know what it's all about. It seems glamorous to people, doesn't it? And people say, oh, I wish I had your job. It's so glamorous. It, it's not glamorous it's lovely and we're very privileged that we get to go to all these places and meet so many different people but like you said it's it's um it's not what everybody thinks it is exactly yeah, yeah. however some of it some of it is kind of cool isn't it it is and i haven't been on a plane in 18 months a couple of weeks time in a couple of weeks time oh. we are doing our first trip since before the pandemic it's only a little one it's only a little one but the first thing we did anyway when we booked it went we'll go to that restaurant for dinner on that day and we'll go to that restaurant for lunch yeah. because it's somewhere that we've um been to so been many times many times and mm. when you do go back somewhere often then there are places you want to go to especially restaurants so we've already got that all lined up that was the first thing we even yeah, talked about but it's it? never art gallery no um uh theater it's never let's go back and see that again it's just all oh, that restaurant it's a first night and then we'll try a bit of the other one in that place it's funny yeah. isn't it food does for me anyway and i know for rebecca and it seems like for you nick Food is just the in part of international. It's part of the world, isn't it? It's, it's part of what makes going to places part. Going to places, it's it, it, it does. I, I think there is one for me personally. There's just one other thing, which is um, I, I'm certainly one who enjoys a dramatic landscape. So I need mountains. I need cliffs. Okay. I love I need canyons, deserts. So yeah. most beautiful place you've ever seen, uh, Nick. Got to be somewhere in Utah deserts. Utah, probably Canyonlands. Rebecca? Oh, don't. I'm Mine's stressed easy. out now. Go on. Cape Town. Cape Town. I've never been to Cape it's, Town. It's, well, it was, it, Cape Town itself is gorgeous, but there was a place I went to. It's about a four-hour drive out of there into the Winelands. It was a, a small game reserve, and I, I've never seen anything as beautiful as that. It was absolutely extraordinary. I love a view, so wherever I go... If there's a nice viewpoint that I can go to and stand and gaze out or take pictures and stuff. So I just feel like I could reel off so many. Yeah. And I think what is strange is for anybody who's actually not been brought up in East Anglia. And I, I was brought up in the Lake District myself. So the big thing I miss is a mountain. Yeah. Because it's wonderful here, but we do have something missing. Have you been to Lake Geneva? Yes, oh, absolutely. Extraordinary. Yeah, and, yeah. and actually you say about Cape Town. Cape Town, amazing, fantastic. Because you've got that big rock there in the background, you know. Uh, and uh, the amazing thing about South Africa is everywhere there's this red rock. And it's mm. so colourful. Mm. And it's like you're, you're in almost like in a, in a dream, a, a vivid dream, where the colours are bluer and redder and greener than you could ever imagine. The people are more colourful too everything in, in South Africa is just colourful the personalities are more colourful the, 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 like you say the views are more colourful the food is more colourful the cars are more everything just appears to be in, in HD in, in, in South Africa it's just a wonderful place yeah mind you having, having said that I think the staycation for a lot of us uh, this couple, couple of years has actually made us rethink about what's good in the UK and we've got some amazing stuff I mean, recently I went on a little trip to North Yorkshire 
and uh, tour one, of Scotland as well, no? Uh, yeah, yeah, Scotland as well. Um, but one place that's really sticking in my mind at the moment is Revo Abbey, which is a ruined abbey in um, the close to the North York Moors, and arrived lovely morning sunshine, just a little bit of mist, everything peaceful, quiet, green trees, uh, a valley, you know. It was such, it was almost like a spiritual experience. Uh, and you think, actually, you can have great, great holidays in the UK. You just have to choose the time and place carefully. Yeah. So, Nick, um, food, we've talked about it a little bit, but it is part of your remit. Now, exporting British food. If you ask people abroad what they like about the UK, I suspect the food usually isn't on the top of the list. It's normally going to be the history or the buildings or the culture. But when you talk about other countries like perhaps Thailand or um, Japan or France, people say, oh, it's the food, it's the food, it's the food. So what British food are we exporting and who do we export it to and why? Well, that's, that's an amazing question. Um, and I think the first thing to say is, actually, we Brits, we're very down on our own food and we're very defensive about our food. But actually what's happened, certainly in the past 20, 30 years, is the food culture in the UK has completely changed. The quality, the range, the diversity of what you can get. It's amazing. And it's something that we as Brits, we forget that actually when we go into a supermarket, we take it for granted that you can have foods from all around the world, um, a vast array of products, which actually, for visitors from outside of the UK, they're amazed. So, you know, they'll walk into Marks and Spencer's or Waitrose, and if you ever see people from Scandinavia... Other supermarkets are available. There are, there. <laughs> but if you see visitors from Scandinavia, when they're going back on the plane, they've got bags full of stuff from Waitrose and mm. Mars Spencers and the other supermarkets. And it's kind of like they're going back and they're going, hey, look what the Brits are doing now. Eating this Ethiopian tabbouleh. <laughs> <laughs> Abs yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the sheer diversity, you know. Um, uh, it's the UK, uh, so, you know, we have fantastic products. So we have things like whiskey, we have... Uh, products like chocolate for example we're really really good at making it is the best we chocolate. Are it is the best chocolate, chocolate. Yeah. the swiss can do chocolate but it is ours is really good yeah, yeah. it is really good isn't yeah. it and our wine yeah and um as you know it is it's a bit, a bit of a strange thing if you ever go to the states and you taste their chocolate no yeah. no it's not good it's got a different taste yeah <laughs> no it's um, not right and there is well, there, there is apparently there is a story about that which is how they make chocolate in the states originally they used to make it with a bit of sour milk so it has a slightly sour oh. taste so when you're tasting american chocolate you think oh this doesn't taste quite right but actually that's because you were brought up with the taste of british chocolate yeah um also so cadbury's Yes. have a factory in Australia or New Zealand, I think. So they make it there. But that tastes different to what we have Well, Cadbury's was bought by an American company, I believe, and they have, over time, changed the Cadbury's dairy milk recipe. So it mm. does actually taste a bit different to what it used to. Well, also, um, actually, 
in the past I used to um, visit Cadbury's as a supplier. Um, and one of the great experiences I remember is seeing cream eggs being mm. made, um, but they had different batches for different markets. Yeah. Oh, go on. And they Why? gave me a little taste of the chocolate, and there is a different formulation for the different markets. So they're actually is adapting there? the product yeah. to the, the, the markets they're trying to sell to. I think in Asia they think that our sweets are too sweet as well. So that was often when I lived in Japan, that was a, a comment that if they had any chocolate or sweets or something that we gave them, they are oh no, this is this is far sweeter than what theirs would be. Although I didn't really notice that much of a difference. But I recently went to Cadbury's World. Oh, which, if anybody hasn't been, you should go because it is amazing. I think we've it only was... just finished the chocolate. Yeah, I know back. that. <laughs> bought from the gift store. It was amazing. It was so good. Yeah, very interesting. So Cadbury's is a classic English brand, although I think it is owned by an American company now. Yes, but it's, it's Mondelez. Still... Mondelez own them mm. now. But it is a it's a it's a classic British brand, isn't it? What are the, what are the British foods then? Because are are we exporting? What's the what's is it is it the mussels from a certain coastline or is it the what is it that's in vogue do you know to go abroad? yeah well um there's there's uh there's a lot of demand for british uh, seafood for um for our grocery products um there's things like um crisps for example mm. uh, we do really really well um because we've got such innovative flavors uh, and actually, I've got some clients literally down the road in Duxford mm. who are selling um, some amazing flavours. Um, oh, and tell us. Yeah, Nick, can can you you know pull Look a few strings? Well, we, you know, you know, we are crispy people. <laughs> we are crispy people. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to them nicely because I'm sure that they'd want to they'd want to support what Bell Education are doing. We could. Uh, I'm sure our students would. We love could do a more. podcast though about crisps. I'm oh, all up for that. Don't. Oh. Um, okay, so um, what about away from UK food and British food exports? What's your favourite international food that's been imported? Something that you think, oh, that's that's just right up there. Okay. I like everything. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you see, I'm the same. It's hard to just say. But sushi it? wasn't here 20 years ago, was it? It wasn't. It wasn't. There wasn't really, not like it is, not like you see it today. There wouldn't be sushi, would there? So, or would there? I first went to Japan about 20 years ago, about 19 years ago. And they had, I remember then, I'd never, I don't think I'd ever tried, I had tried some sushi, but it was like the vegetable sushi from Marks and Spencer's. Right. Um, and that was it before I went there. So there was just nothing. But by the time I came back five and a half years later, there was a lot more around. And then, you know, different Japanese restaurants and sushi restaurants were popping up. Yeah. I mean, now, once I went to Korea first, South Korea the first time, 10 years ago, it wasn't until I came back that I'd noticed there were there were Korean restaurants in yeah. London. I didn't hadn't noticed mm. them before. I'd, yeah, I don't know why, but then once you get a taste for that Korean barbecue, yeah, then you've got to keep going for it. Yeah. Well, for me, uh, a recent experience is that I went to a Lebanese re- restaurant in Oxford, <sighs> and the thing is, this is a very personal thing, but I uh, I was very lucky when I was younger. I got a year off from university to go and teach English in Tunisia. Oh, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I ate Tunisian for a year. And the thing was, when I came back from Tunisia, 
back in those days, you just couldn't find any of those North African flavours. Yeah. But now, actually, you're starting to see it coming through. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's great. You know, I'm a great fan of a certain supermarket beginning with a W. And if you go to the yeah. top shelf, there's all sorts of products now you can buy that you just couldn't got a few years ago which means you can recreate some of that at home you know so lamb tagine yeah. you know all of that sort of thing oh yeah my favorite you know you take a piece of lamb put it in the oven cook it for six seven hours bring it out and it just falls off the bone but with all those aromatics at the same time oh. british lamb of course oh of course of course <laughs> british lamb with uh, international flavors that's basically sums up the dit doesn't it the best of british Coupled with some international, international flavour. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, and we should say UK, by the way, because, of course, we've yes, got some fantastic products in Northern Ireland. Um, and I have to say, on, on the travel front, we didn't talk about Northern Ireland, but actually that is one of those hidden destinations yeah. that a lot of people have been discovering this past couple of years. Wonderful place. Uh, if know, they could export their champ, you know, the um, creamy mashed potatoes with oh, spring onions, if they yeah. could export champ around the world, they would be, they would be uh, in a good position. It's such good stuff. But when you go there, the, the whole place is so lush and green. Mm. You can see why they've got some yeah. absolutely fantastic food uh, and, and the seafood and, oh, you know, uh, you've got stuff that's come straight out of the Irish Sea. Uh, amazing, amazing. I always... Worry, so how you were saying that you went to the Lebanese restaurant in Oxford, was the food, obviously it was lovely, but was it as you remembered from when you were in Tunisia? Uh, no, it had been adapted, yeah. um, for sure. Because the Lebanon's a different country to Tunisia. I know, I was just going to say, I've also just completely... <laughs> there, there, there could be that yeah. aspect to it. <laughs> I've also, as I was saying, I was like, hang on a minute, reckon this does not make sense. But Well, funny enough, though, there is a, there is, there is a connection, because actually, when you go into this restaurant, it's got a theme, and they've built some of the, uh, the counter out of tins of harissa, which, as you probably know, is a kind of spicy yeah. base. Um, quite fragrant but quite hot at the same time um, and they've got these big yellow cans of harissa made in Tunisia so okay. actually part of the yeah. Lebanese cuisine which you know so there is that Fair crossover yeah. um, in North Africa um, uh, and you can find between sort of Moroccan and Tunisian food there are some differences but there are also some commonalities you know, yeah. things like lamb chickpeas couscous these kind of things you know, um, and everything that comes from a Mediterranean climate that, you know, it's not so easy to find here. Um, and of course, things like olives and what have you. Um, amazing. Because I always think of when I lived in Japan and there was, I only lived in a small city and there was a, an Irish pub and we'd occasionally go and you could go and have fish and chips that weren't really fish and chips. It was some battered fish bites and some fries, you know, but it was the closest that we got to fish and chips. And it was served in newspaper, which I think was the the way that they presented it as as being British. Um, and but, but that is that is the British, that, that is the view, isn't it? If, if you asked, I'm sure if you asked people around the world, what do the British people eat? What is British food? It's fish and, fish and chips. chips. Something like roast dinner will probably come up at some point. Um yeah, people used to say to me, my students, and when I was teaching there, or people, they just be like, oh, but British food is really bland, isn't it? And I'd be like, well, no, not really. And then I was like, mm, 
maybe like when I was growing up, it was probably blander than it is, you know, than it is now. But yeah, like trying to, I cooked sometimes for people as well to be like, look, this is the kind of thing that we eat. We don't just eat fish and chips, you know. Boiled potatoes. Boiled and potatoes. Everyone thinks we eat potatoes. Yeah. There's loads of potatoes in different forms, which is true. Which is, yeah, true. I mean, potatoes are the best anyway, aren't they? But... We grow a lot of good potatoes here in the UK, don't we, Nick? Absolutely, yes. Um, and we turn them into great crisps as well. We do. And chips. But there you go, <laughs> always. And, and Belfast champ. Exactly, mm. yes. Yeah. Well, Nick, on that note... A very foodie note. I guess we're getting close to lunchtime, so now I'm getting quite peckish. Um, thanks a lot for coming in. Um, thanks for all your help with us um, and the Agricultural Science Foundation program, helping us to get that get that kicked off. Um, and we hope to speak to you again um, at the end, towards the end of next year, when hopefully the first students are are due to arrive on yeah. the course, and we'll catch up with you, and hopefully you may have been in the plane by then. Well, I tell you what, Sam, I'm really looking forward to coming uh, uh, and visiting you again and seeing the students and just seeing them enjoying everything that they can do here at Bell and Cambridge. It's going to be a wonderful experience for them, and I'm sure they're going to love it. And don't forget to ask that crisp factory if we can have a walk round. Okay. Yeah, what yeah. are some of the interesting flavours? <laughs> Sorry, because I did mean to ask you that. Do you okay. know some of these? Yes, I do. So uh, there's Wagyu beef. Oh, nice. Uh, there's rosemary and truffle. Oh, nice. Um, they've actually got a new vegan ham flavour coming out, which is interesting. Mm. Um, no, you're not. You're not. You're not. I'm persuaded. not. I'm not vegan, but and I've tried vegan ham. We'll give the crisps a go, though. Right? Yeah, we'll try them though. Yeah, we we don't discriminate against crisps, no. do we? They all get tried. Yeah, they sound good. Okay, I'll get the order in for Thanks. you. Thanks. <laughs> That's a promise. Right. Thanks, Nick. Thank you very much. Pleasure. You can find out more about what we do at Bell by visiting our website at bellenglish.com.